What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So that's the question, isn't it, Adam? Where the hell is James Bond? Yeah, the new Bond, No Time to Die, has kind of been our when are things returning to normal barometer since early 2020. And by that measure, Josh, we can expect normality to return. Let me just check here. Carry the one. October 8th, 2021. This week, we look into the unknown with our 2021 movie preview. We've got our top five questions about the new movie year. That and more. Come, come, Mr. Larson. You enjoy delays just as much as I do. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. It's true, if you haven't heard already, several highly anticipated spring 2021 releases have been pushed back to the fall, including Bond 25, No Time to Die. Now, Our annual preview shows have always dealt with some uncertainty, but nothing quite like this year, Josh. Yeah, I mean, we've been asking questions about the movie year ahead for a while now, so we should be ready for this. Yeah, and considering all of the chaos and unpredictability and upheaval of this past year, I actually wondered if most of our questions from last January would apply to this year, since a good chunk of the films we thought might come out definitely did not come out and have been pushed back, some of them, to this year. I was kind of surprised to learn, Josh, here as we get into our top five questions about the movie year, that only three of my 2020 questions were answered, or at least could have been answered. So one of them was, will Dick Johnson is Dead be my favorite movie of 2020 or of all time? It just missed my top 10. So really love that film. After Marriage Story, The Irishman and the King, what will be the cream of Netflix's crop this year? Mank to Five Bloods. I'm thinking of ending things. I was mixed on to Five Bloods, but three of the movies of the year and ending things and Mank did place in my top 10. Finally, how will Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross darken up Pixar's soul? Which isn't something we devoted a whole lot of time to, but that's also because we didn't really end up having time to devote an entire review segment to Soul. There's two then left that actually could have been just applied to this year. I could have copied and pasted. I didn't do that. I put in the work, but I'll save those. What about you, Josh? Yeah, I managed to come up with all new ones, I think, looking back at the list here. You know, regarding Soul, I don't know that they darkened Soul as much as brought an unexpected beauty to it. That was Mm -hmm. one of the lovely surprises for me from the 2020 films. Um, But yeah, Dune, I was wondering about Dune, if it was going to bury Denis Villeneuve. We'll find out later in the year. I had a French dispatch question related to Elizabeth Moss's appearance in it. We'll still see how she fares in that. We know she fared quite well in The Invisible Man, um, and for a lot of people, surely as well. I had a Dick Johnson is Dead question, too. But yeah, there were a couple that still apply. My number five was with After Yang, will Koganata be the mm-hmm. latest Golden Brick winner to go on and achieve even greater things? Hopefully we'll get After Yang yet this year. Uh, I wondered if I would have the courage to watch Candyman 1992 mm-hmm. in preparation for Candyman. I did and found it fascinating. And I'm doubly excited now for Nia DaCosta's Candyman. 
Uh, will there be a reason for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story after John Chu's In the Heights? We're still going to find out that one. And my Bond question, Adam, to bring us back to the top of the show, can James Bond be saved by Ana de Armas, Lashana Lynch, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge in No Time to yeah. Die? Um, still looking forward to that supporting cast as much as I am to a new James Bond movie. So yeah, where does that put me with new questions for 2021? I'm going to start with one regarding Sia, the pop star, and just ask, can Sia direct? I pretty much know about this perplexing music star from her really great and kind of deranged 2017 holiday album, Every Day is Christmas. If you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend checking it out, especially after you've gotten sick of the standards. Uh, But I also know of her from the great original songs that she wrote for the 2018 film, Vox Lux. That's the one where Natalie Portman plays a pop star and Sia provided the music. Uh, Well, this year she's going to be making a considerably more formidable entry into the movie world by co-writing and directing music. Here's the imdb.com synopsis. Zhu is newly sober when she receives news that she is to become the sole guardian of her half-sister named Music, a young girl on the autism spectrum. Now, those character names, Adam, maybe even that premise might have you cringing, but I would kind of expect a Sia movie. It would have to feature someone named Zoo. And I'll mention that Kate Hudson is playing Zoo. Should be interesting. Leslie Odom Jr. is here in a supporting part, which is very promising. And then as for the title role, music, she will be played by Maddie Ziegler, who seems to have been cast for her dance background, uh, including in Sia videos, rather than any firsthand experience with autism. The trailer, I'm going to admit, suggests that might have been a deal with the devil. I, I really hope that we're not going to be in I am Sam territory mm-hmm. here. Um, we'll just have to see. Now, I asked if Sia can direct, but of course she can. She's helmed her own music videos for a while now. Be interesting to see how this functions as a feature film, albeit one that, you know, does hint at being a musical. We'll find out pretty soon. Music comes out February 12th. <laughs> Josh Larson firmly entrenched in the Beyonce and Sia corners of the film spotting market. I, I am not encroaching keep, at all on either at this point, sadly. I'll keep you posted on how things are faring in that corner, Adam. All right. My two questions from last year that could maybe still apply to this year. Which sequel, 30 years in the making, will most make me feel like a kid again? We'll find out if it's Ghostbusters Afterlife or Top Gun Maverick. I guarantee it's going to be Top Gun Maverick. And the trickier one is if a movie year doesn't include dollops of driver and plenty of pew, did it really happen? So I was thinking about the prior year, of course, and all of the great work that both Adam Driver and Florence Pugh put in across multiple films. And it looked like we were going to have at least a smattering of work from them in 2020. Adam Driver in Annette and also the Ridley Scott movie, The Last Duel. Neither of those came out in 2020. And then the Florence Pugh entry was supposed to be Black Widow alongside Scarlett Johansson, I think playing her sister in that movie. Alas, Black Widow also delayed. So let's get into what are my actual 2021 movie preview questions. You know, last year we got an older, not really any wiser, but still totally earnest Ted Theodore Logan, who we hadn't seen since 1991's Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. 17 years later, Josh, we're going to get to see what Neo is up to as 
The Matrix 4 is slated to come out. My guess is that Neo has probably sold out all his ideals. He's bought a little house in a cul-de-sac in The Matrix. He and Trinity aren't really connecting like they used to. I can't wait. <laughs> Lana Wachowski is directing this. Keanu Reeves, obviously starring Carrie Ann Moss, is back. Jada Pinkett Smith is back from the sequels as well. And that is my question. I kind of buried the lead here. Will I finally watch and appreciate the Matrix sequels in preparation mm. for The Matrix 4? And it's slightly misleading because the more I was thinking about this today, I'm pretty sure I did watch The Matrix Reloaded. I remember the freeway chase. I remember the twins with the braids. I do remember Jada Pinkett Smith showing up. I couldn't tell you anything else about that movie, partly because it was released in May 2003, and that's when I last saw it. Also, because it was May 2003, I didn't have an outlet to review it, didn't really have to process the movie, and apparently I found it totally forgettable. I remember finding it totally disappointing coming off The Matrix, which, as we learned during our 9 from 99 series, was not only brilliant in 1999, but even watching it with 2019 eyes as we did, it still completely held up. And I found it so disappointing, in fact, Josh, The Matrix Reloaded, that I know for sure I did not watch The Matrix Revolutions when it came out just like six months later, November 2003. So I've kind of lumped those together and always just assumed I had never really seen them because I've never finished the trilogy. Well, now we're going to get the fourth entry. And not only does it have the stars that I mentioned, I am excited to see Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who was so good in Watchmen on HBO, and he played Bobby Seale in Trial of the Chicago 7. He's in this one. And it has been percolating over the past couple of years, maybe the past three to four years, You'll see it every once in a while pop up in a social media feed. Wired did an article in 2019. The Matrix is nothing without its sequels. Nothing. The subhead, a cultural majority of dweeby gas bags, holds that the Matrix sequels are trash. Go unplug yourself. There are plenty of articles and reevaluations out there who say everybody got it wrong in 2003. These movies are really good. In fact, our friends from the Blank Check podcast also devoted time to these films, I think four years ago. And I would have thought, I'm making generalizations here, that it would have been Griffin who would be all about these movies. And David Sims would have been more inclined to not be a fan. But back in 2014, David Sims, according to Letterboxd, gave it four and a half stars. And then in 2019, rewatched it, gave it five stars. And in all caps, Josh said, there's literally more to discover every time. So... <laughs> We'll see what I discover and whether or not I have to retain the title of Dweeby Gasbag as I finally enjoy The Matrix Revolutions and revisit The Matrix Reloaded. Mr. Anderson. Surprised to see me? So now he's found a way to copy himself. Now there's more than one of them. A lot more. Well, as usual, when it comes to those sequels, I find myself in a place that will please no one. I was hugely positive on Matrix Reloaded on my site, gave it three and a half out of four stars, and then a big drop off for me when it got to Revolutions, only two out of four. So I am eager to revisit those and see what I was thinking then and what I make of them now, um, and maybe maybe come down a little bit more firmly one side or the other. Which which one is the cave rave? Do you remember a cave rave, <laughs> or is that in Revolutions? I, I don't know. I don't remember it. Okay. Yeah, I we'll, want to say We'll find out later this year. But- 
it entirely could have been in The Matrix Reloaded. We have some time to do this homework, Josh. I think December 22nd of this year is when Warner Brothers has pushed The Matrix 4 to, and that will be a simultaneous release in cinemas and on HBO Max. My number four question, what is M. Night Shyamalan up to? Now, I saw in a number of previews that Shyamalan would have a 2021 feature, but other than the name, Old, no one really had any details. They would just use vague phrases like plot kept under wraps, which, you know, you would partly expect from Shyamalan. But then our production assistant, Kat Sullivan, she passed on a preview over at Collider, and they had this summary. It's about a group of people who find a dead body on a beach and slowly realize there is something unnatural happening on that beach, something nefarious involving time itself as teased by the hourglass full of people on the film's mysterious poster. Old is inspired by the French graphic novel Sandcastle by Pierre-Oscar Levy and artist Frederick Peters. But naturally, Shyamalan will be doing his own thing with the premise, which may be for the best, given how open-ended the graphic novel leaves things. So not an entirely original project from Shyamalan, something he wrote on his own. That's interesting as well to me. Um, That gives you a little bit more info, but I don't know if we will really know what old is all about until we see it. Maybe even then, Adam, given other Shyamalan projects, we still won't know entirely what it was about and leave a little bit confused. The cast here is promising. Alex Wolf from Hereditary and Thomasin McKenzie, who is just fantastic and leave no trace. I've been largely... Enjoying recent Shyamalan, yes, even Glass, and um, so I'm intrigued by this. I'll give it a shot. Old is coming out on July 23. Thomas and McKenzie, fantastic as well, and your beloved Jojo Rabbit from Taika Waititi. And I did consider a question about M. Night Shyamalan. I guess my question would have been more something along the lines of, after the relative success, and I didn't necessarily like all of these films, but... The Visit, Glass, Split, isn't Shyamalan due for a happening-like debacle? That's what I feel is coming, unfortunately. Couldn't it go either way with him, though? Yeah, I mean, could. Do you still feel like he has—I I like more of his films than you and more str- way more strongly than you, but I feel like he, he could still have a signs in him. He could still have a sixth sense in him, but you're right. He could very well have a happening in him as well. It's a gamble. That's part part of what makes it exciting, I mm-hmm. think. All right. My number four question about the movie year is going to be teed up by our friend, our colleague, the co-host of the Next Picture Show podcast, Keith Phipps. Hi, Adam and Josh. This is Keith Phipps from your sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Just calling in to tell you about one of my most anticipated films of 2021, which is called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. It stars uh, one Nicolas Cage as Nicolas Cage. Uh, It is a... You know, I don't know. I, I haven't seen it. I have read the script. If they pull this off, it's going to be. Uh, it could be like Nicolas Cage's Don Malkovich, it's a self-referential film in which he plays himself as kind of a down on his luck actor. And uh, there are twists that I would, should not get into. But I say the more knowledge about Nicolas Cage you bring into this, the probably the more likely you are to enjoy it. It co-stars Pedro Pascal and Sharon Horgan and Neil Patrick Harris. Um, short, the uh, short, here, short version of the plot is he's down on his luck after who takes $1 million to attend the birthday of a super fan who has houses filled with Nicholas Cage memorabilia. Uh, I have a special interest in this film because I spent the last year writing a book called Age of Cage about Nicholas Cage films. It will be out by, it's going to be published by Holt out this fall. Uh, I'm sure Adam and Josh will tell, uh, all of you, their listeners about it at the time. 
Uh, and but until then, uh, something to look forward to. I hope. I hope you like it. Anyway, thanks so much. I always enjoy the show, of course, and I'm looking forward to watching all these movies that people are talking about. Thank you, Keith, for that. And every time he's mentioned this book project, or I've asked him about the book project on a recent trivia spotting virtual event, I get a little kick out of the name of his book, The Age of Cage. I mean, I want to own that book. I don't even care if I love Nicolas Cage or not. And I do tend to lean towards the loving Nicolas Cage side. I think it's going to be a fascinating read. And Keith did an excellent job setting up this Cage release for 2021, which, as he said, he's read. I'm jealous that he had access to the screenplay. My question is, will the unbearable weight of massive talent be the new being John Malkovich, as Keith referenced, or JCVD? And I'll confess to a little bit of a straw man here because I saw JCVD, I think, at Sundance in 2008. This is the movie where Jean-Claude Van Damme is playing a semi-fictionalized version of himself. Did you see it, Josh? No, but I I remember. I know what you're talking about. And, you know, it's him being a struggling former action star who basically gets caught up in the plot of a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. And as I recall, anyway, I'd have to maybe check the film spotting website, the archive to see if I rated it. But I remember thinking it was a pretty good time, certainly way better than it had any right to be. And I also, as I set up this dichotomy here, isn't it way more likely that this movie by design is going to be way more like JCVD than being John Malkovich? But I can't help but make that reference again, as Keith did as well. That movie was my fourth favorite film of 1999. It was and remains a masterpiece. And it's the pinnacle for this type of meta project. And there's similarities, too, of course, in terms of the stars featuring an eclectic actor, Malkovich, probably fair to say more elusive and mysterious than Cage. I mean, there's certainly mystery with Cage. I was thinking today, Josh, the question surrounding him just as always, why? (laughs) I mean, that's a mystery. Why? Mm -hmm. How? But we don't really have any sense of who Malkovich is off screen. And of course, the movie was playing with that notion. And I think we all feel like whether it's true or not, we all feel like we know exactly who Nicolas Cage is when he's on screen or off. And I mentioned it. I've always enjoyed him as an actor that 80s and 90s run. Not everyone was a gem, of course, but then you get to the early 2000s. He was great in Charlie Kaufman's adaptation. And then I really loved him in Ridley Scott's Matchstick Men. And then it got to a point where Film spotting started. We reviewed Lord of War in 05. We talked about, I think, The Weatherman. At least one host did when it came out. And World Trade Center in 2006. Maybe more because it was an Oliver Stone film than a Nicolas Cage movie. But after that, it's just like the wilderness when you look at his IMDb where you have maybe 40 titles. And I've seen two or three of them. And talked about only one or two of them here on the show. The... David Gordon Green movie that was supposed to kind of be Cage's comeback to serious acting, Joe. And that's about it. Now, there's an alternate question here, I suppose, that maybe people listening think I'm going to come around to posing, which is, will this then be that reannouncement of Cage, that reintroduction of Cage as a serious actor? Is he back? Whatever that means. And I think, Josh, we just have to accept that maybe that ship has sailed like Nick Cage is gonna Nick Cage and 
while I suppose I would like a Nicolas Cage movie to be something I looked forward to seeing versus something I knew I was just going to ignore completely, I suppose I'll take him dropping in every few years with a good one. I would be okay with that. And another reason I am excited about it, Pedro Pascal, who the more I reflect on Wonder Woman 1984, and Mm. I don't do much reflection on that film, Josh, but (laughs) he was one of my favorite parts of that movie as the villain there channeling some real Nicolas Cage manic energy as I think about that performance. So seeing those two together on screen playing, you know, protagonist antagonist and knowing that Pedro Pascal is supposed to be almost maybe an alter ego or someone who patterns himself obsessively after Nicolas Cage. Maybe there's going to be some fireworks there, Josh, in this movie directed by Tom Gormican, who has only otherwise written and directed 2014's That Awkward Moment in terms of film features. Maybe this movie will be one of the surprises of the year. It's supposed to come out March 19th. We will see. Hi, I need a refill of this. I don't have a prescription. Sir, please wait your turn. I know, I know, but this is an emergency. Hey, buddy, ever heard of a line? Hey, have you ever been dragged to the sidewalk and being until you pissed blood? I think the, the problem with a potential cage renaissance is just the volume of work. I mean, unless yeah. he unless he slows down and gets to be selective, even something great that comes from him, and maybe this will be it, is going to be surrounded by some, you know, quickly put out stuff. You look at 2017, one, two, three, four, five. I think six releases, feature releases here on his on his credits. 2018 has another like five. 2019 has six. Some of those, some of that's voice work. You know, I mean, he's he's great in Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, but still, this is a pace of production that you're just not. I mean, you know, you're you're cranking them out like a a donut assembly line at this point. And so trying to rescue a career if that's what we think he needs is hard to do in that sort of context. And the other question, I don't know if this movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, needs this, but thinking about something like being John Malkovich, um, if it is going to be at some level a critique, does he have the willingness to go for the sort of self-evisceration that Malkovich goes for in right. that movie. And that's where I pause and wonder, hmm, you know, I think he's he's lampooned acting and and the business in something like adaptation. But is he is he really willing to disembowel himself? <laughs> yeah. Because that's what makes Malkovich's performance so juicy. No, and maybe that's, that's the movie might not need that. It might go in a completely sure. different direction. But in comparing those two, that's where my mind goes. Yeah. No, that's a good point, though. I do think fondly of his appearance on In the Cage with Andy Samberg on SNL, where, you know, he had a little bit of fun skewering sure. himself. So yeah. hopefully that comes through here. One of the things I've always loved about Nicolas Cage, going back to those early performances in the 80s, including even something like Peggy Sue Got Married, is the sense of humor that he Mm -hmm. brings to those characters and some of his more outlandish choices. So yeah, I'm genuinely excited for this one. He's certainly self-aware, which, you know, is obvious from even being a part of a project like this. Mm -hmm. All right. My number three question, Adam, um, kind of personal. Do you think we can convince Sarah to go see the Northman? One of my favorite (laughs) recent movie going experiences, Uh especially since we've had so few since then was when Debbie and I went to see Robert Eggers, the lighthouse and then discussed the madness that is that movie over drinks afterwards with you and Sarah. I like the movie quite a bit. You, as I recall, not so much a fan. Yeah. But Sarah, 
Oh, poor Sarah. <laughs> she was so funny in her dismissal. She had no time for foghorns, no lighthouses, mermaids, no. Willem Dafoe's beard. You're fond of me lobster, ain't you? Drunken in a virginity fence. I seen it. You're fond of me lobster. Say it. Say it. I don't know. How, how does she feel, Adam, about uh, sea shanty TikTok? Is, is she equally <laughs> <laughs> impatient with that? Yeah, let's let's not go down that road. Okay. I, at least, I can't wait to see The Northmen. This is Edgar's new film. I'd love to see it with her just to get her reaction. Mm-hmm. It's set in Iceland at the turn of the 10th century, described as a Viking revenge saga. Defoe is back for this one, along with Anya Taylor-Joy from The Queen's Gambit. But of course, her breakout film was Edgar's The Witch. Also in the cast is Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, and Ethan Hawke, which is very curious. Very interesting. Now you're going to have to see it. Yeah, I I mean, talk about marrying the lead. You just buried Ethan Hawke. That's all I needed to hear. You'd written off Eggers. Now you got your back in. He got you back in. There's no release date yet uh, for The Northman, but it is in post-production. So pretty confident it'll be out in 2021 and maybe... Adam, maybe this can be our first post-pandemic double date. (laughs) I can't wait. I know that Sarah can. As eager (laughs) as she is to get back out there and have some fun, get out of the house, hang out with the Larsons. I don't know, Josh. She might just be desperate enough at that She might be, This might be what it takes. It might have taken a pandemic to get Sarah (laughs) to agree to this date night. Okay, my number three question of this movie year is, will Judas and the Black Messiah powerfully teach a new generation about Fred Hampton and anoint Daniel Kaluuya as one of his generation's best actors. When I was driving into the city more regularly in the before times, I did consistently drive past the Fred Hampton mural that's on a building at California Avenue and Madison Street. And because I haven't driven by it regularly recently i didn't know that it had changed actually as of late 2020 a new mural had been painted over the top of it the original one was painted in 2010 Dasik fernandez was the artist who was commissioned to paint it by a group that included fred hampton's son fred hampton jr the new one was painted by a bronx artist named andre trenier And according to a website I was looking at today, Josh, for some of these details, secretchicago.com, they said that the faces found on this new mural are facing westward, intentionally looking away from downtown to symbolize that Fred Hampton's legacy belongs to the residents of the west side of Chicago. People who hadn't previously known about the Black Panthers began asking questions about the struggle for equality after seeing the piece go up. Hampton Jr. said the mural gives neighborhood youth real people from their community who they can draw strength and wisdom from. There is a 1971 documentary called The Murder of Fred Hampton that I haven't seen. I have seen the more recent Black Panther documentary, Vanguard of the Revolution, that was 2015. I've read enough accounts and just generally know enough about Hampton's legacy to think about his tragic death. More accurately, an assassination. FBI and Chicago police raided his apartment while everyone in the house was sleeping. Hampton lying next to his fiancée, who was eight months pregnant. And they fired almost 100 bullets into the apartment, killing Hampton, another Black Panther named Mark Clark, and they injured critically four other Black Panthers. And every time I drive by it, what I think about is the leader who was lost. I think about the way he was lost, despite now being able to point to far too many similar cases in America before this happened, but also, of course, 
after it happened, way more recently. And you just shake your head and wonder how in America that that is allowed to happen. We got a glimpse of Fred Hampton as a character on screen recently in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. He certainly deserves an entire movie based on his life and that tragic death. And then you've got someone like Daniel Kaluuya playing him. We saw him in Get Out, his breakout performance. Then he's really good in a supporting role in Black Panther, really good and really scary playing the heavy in Steve McQueen's Widows. I did miss Queen and Slim, but I think we've all recognized that he was not any kind of flash in the pan. This guy has the goods. And of all the movies I'm going to talk about in this preview, this is the only one of my picks where there is a trailer that you can watch and it and Kaluuya in it. It's incendiary. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. Ryan Coogler producing this film, Shaka King directing. This is his first feature, his first drama since a a stoner comedy called Newlyweeds in 2013 that I didn't see. Otherwise, he's only done shorts and TV. And in addition to Kaluuya, you've got another of our great talents, Lakeith Stanfield, playing the Judas character, betraying. Fred Hampton with another really good actor, Jesse Plemons, as the Pharisee law enforcement agent who turns him. So great cast and really, as I said, a historical figure that I can't wait to learn more about and see brought to life on screen. Yeah, that cast is unreal. And Kaluuya in Queen and Slim, he is so good in that opening moment, which is where where he's on a date and it's just this quiet, intimate exchange before kind of the the police brutality ensues. That's part of that story. Um, And so that follows up the films you mentioned as well. You know, Black Panther, Widows. He's really been on a run, some in more supporting parts than where we saw him in Get Out, but certainly uh, has showed that the talent is there. So that makes Judas of the Black Messiah really exciting. Yeah, I think February 12th is the date scheduled for that one. A lot of Oscar buzz ahead of those later in the year Oscars, April, I believe, for this one and for Kaluuya specifically. But again, mark it down February 12th. One thing that will be certain in 2021, Adam, Massacre Theater. It's going to be terrible. Just going to remain terrible. (laughs) That's up next, along with the rest of our 2021 preview. Stay with us. Even farther than Harlem to Northern Manhattan and maintain. Get off at 181st and take the escalator. I hope you're writing this down. I'm going to test you later. I'm getting tested. Times are tough on this bodega. Two months ago, somebody bought Ortegas. Our neighbors started packing up and picking up. And ever since the rents went up, it's gotten mad expensive. But we live with just enough. In the heights, I flip the lights and start my day. Without a ranked contender, what this fight is going to need is a novelty. This is the land of opportunity, right? So Apollo Creed on January 1st gives a local underdog fighter an opportunity. A snow-white underdog, and I'm going to put his face on this poster with me. 
You're listening to Film Spotting and our 2021 movie preview. We'll get back to that preview and our top five movie questions of the movie year in just a bit. But first, that clip from Rocky. Carl Weathers, Apollo Creed. They're desperately trying to salvage a heavily promoted fight when his opponent goes down with an injury. Without a ranked contender, he turns to novelty. This is something we can't relate to at all, Josh. You're you're suggesting with movie theaters being closed, all these big releases postponed, we have to we have to change our plans, shake it up a little That's bit. Right. Is that where you're That's going? Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We mixed it up a little bit last year and we managed to get by and I would say successfully with things like our Christopher Nolan Oeuvre review. So we have had a lot of planning meetings lately where we have looked ahead to this year and tried to decide what we could pull out of the bag of tricks to appease our audience this year. We will have more to say about Rocky, much maybe to Josh's chagrin. Oh this is going to be, remember you asked me, was it last show? You, you, you seem to imply that I never changed my mind about a first impression of a movie. Yeah. We'll see. This is going to be a good test. Rocky, not good. Not good, Adam. The pressure campaign now among our <laughs> listeners. Oh, I've been living with it for years. <laughs> <laughs> Along with new reviews and top fives, our 2021 will also include, of course, Film Spotting Madness. You're used to that. A couple of marathons. You're used to those. We'll get to some Sacred Cows. We will have another Oob review, and we will have another Best Movie Year Ever series. Let's start with Madness for the uninitiated. Our annual bracket-style tournament, the seventh annual Film Spotting Madness, will kick off here in late February. Last year, Josh, listeners chose the best film of the 2010s, and they said it was a movie that rounded out the decade as one of the best, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. We had finished a trilogy where it went 90s to the 2000s to the 2010s. Now we're going to get in the DeLorean, we're going to go back in time, and we're going to crown the best film of the 1980s. Where I'm sure for us, nostalgia will not be involved at all, not at all in this voting, right? <laughs> We're just going to be able to set that aside from this formative era. What is the opposite of recency bias? It's nostalgia. Yes, exactly. There you so, go. Links to more information about Film Spotting Madness, including the current shortlist. A lot of consternation about the shortlist. It had over 100 titles on it for 64 slots. And yet our listeners do think we need to add at least 15 to 20 more. That is why we call it Film Spotting Madness. If you want to get in on the insanity, go to filmspotting.net slash madness. We have done, Josh, to date. I should have asked you to guess how many you thought it was. Of course, you have not been a part of all of them. Maybe not even half of them yet, but pretty close. We've done 42 marathons over the 15 plus years of film spotting, all designed to help us fill in cinematic blind spots. Last year, we had a few good ones. 42. I, I would not have guessed that high. That's an impressive, impressive clip. Yeah, last year we did a four-film Betty Davis marathon. So that looked at some of her most acclaimed work from the 30s and the 40s. And then we did a seven-film marathon that was devoted to overlooked auteurs. This was an exploration of the films of seven women filmmakers whose work we badly needed to catch up on or in a case or two revisit. So we looked at Maya Darren, Chantal Ackerman, and Julie Dash. They were among the subjects there. This year, big plans again. We're going to check out the newly restored Wong Kar Wai titles that Criterion is going to release in a box set here in March. So that's seven films are in that set. It starts with Wong's 1988 debut, As Tears Go By. 
And we'll also include 1990's Days of Being Wild, 94's Chungking Express, 95's Fallen Angels, 97's Happy Together, 2000's In the Mood for Love, and 2004's 2046. Those films, they did have a virtual theatrical run last fall, but again, we'll be on that Criterion box set in March. And that's going to be a combination, I think, Adam, of revisits probably in more cases than usual in a marathon, but that's okay. Some brand new watches as well. Again, we hope to get to that marathon later in the year. Yeah, first up, we are hoping to knock out either a William Wyler marathon or a marathon that will likely include at least one William Wyler movie, and that's 40s noir. And I think we can go ahead and just tell the audience, Josh, what we're wrestling with here a little bit is that we like to mix up these marathons and not devote them exclusively to the works of a certain director. It could be like Betty Davis, a performer, or reaching across a certain genre or something else that's connecting them, like in the case of our Overlooked or Tours Marathon from last year. But with us doing an oeuvre review, we're also recognizing that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about one director in particular this year. So how many of those types of marathons do we want to do where we're just focusing on one filmmaker? So we could do something instead like 40s noir. Film noir was one of the first marathons we did back in the early days of the show. I think it was 2007. We have a feeling most people out there like noir as a genre, but Weiler is a longtime marathon candidate, 12 best director nominations. That is a record that may never be broken. The runner-up is Martin Scorsese with nine. Weiler had three wins. The best years of our lives. Here's the biggest thing for me. It's a huge blind spot. Just one that I have to rectify sooner rather than later. And I do kind of have a predilection for classical Hollywood cinema in terms of recognizing my blind spots, Josh, and wanting to fill those. So Weiler is very, very tempting to me. Of course, it's difficult. This is a filmmaker who covered 45 years and started in the silent era and then ended up in the late 1960s. And he had those 12 best directing nominations, the first coming in 1937 with Dodsworth. So how do you narrow that down to just five or six? Right. William Wyler is a filmmaker. We could do a marathon and feel like we still need to do a marathon when we're done. Yeah. That's not a reason uh, to go against it. Maybe it's a reason to to get started. So I would be thrilled to do that. I, I'm equally excited about the the 40s noir. Maybe I maybe I lean a little bit more that way just because of what you mentioned. Is we are going to be director focused. We'll get to that when we talk about our Uber review plans. And so it might be nice to shake it up a little bit and examine mm-hmm. a period and a genre instead for this marathon. Well. You now have time and an opportunity to nudge us one way or the other feedback at filmspotting.net. We hope to have this worked out by next week's show because we would like to embark on that new marathon, whatever it is, in a couple of weeks and give you guys, of course, a chance to follow along and do your homework. More information about all of our marathons is available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. All right. So let's move on to the oeuvre review plans, Adam. Last year, and this was partly because there were very few new movies coming out. So we thought, how could we tackle some older stuff? We did decide to embark on our first oeuvre review, and that was hooked around Tenet, which, you know, was jumping around release dates so often. At the time, at the beginning of the year, we thought it was going to be a summer release, so it seemed like a no-brainer to revisit the Christopher Nolan filmography chronologically. And I think that was really rewarding to do. Those were movies that we'd seen probably 
a good number of them more than once, but still to look at them in context altogether, it was a new experience for me, a new way to experience Nolan's films at least. Mm -hmm. So for this year's overview, we did look ahead and saw Tenet as a similar model where there's some high profile releases that we're really excited about that might be an opportunity to look at the director and their career in its entirety. Looks like in 2021, we might get a Paul Thomas Anderson film by the end of the year. He's an obvious candidate for something like this. Mm -hmm. Wes Anderson, The French Dispatch, we hope will come out in 2021. We feel like, you know, we've talked about him quite a bit. You just did a marathon with your family. I kind of did a mini one. So maybe now is not the right time for something like that. What about Guillermo del Toro? He's got two films slated to open in 2021, an animated remake of Pinocchio and then the live action Nightmare Alley. So he was an option for us. Denis Villeneuve and Edgar Wright. Both a couple names we considered. Villeneuve has Dune, of course, and then Edgar Wright has Last Night in Soho. But for various reasons, we decided not to go with any of those options. That is the case. The subject of this year's overview is going to be Jane Campion. Her new one is The Power of the Dog. It was acquired by Netflix and will come to the service at some point this year. We don't have a date currently. Another great cast here, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Benedict Cumberbatch, and it's Campion's first feature since 2009's Bright Star, though she did create, write, and co-direct Top of the Lake with Elizabeth Moss. That was a TV series that debuted in 2013 and had a follow-up season in 2017. But yeah, first feature since Bright Star, which is kind of staggering to consider. She has only made seven features since 1989, and maybe with one or two exceptions, we have seen them. So mostly these will be revisits, but revisits that we definitely think will be worthwhile. Yeah. And I think one of the considerations is, as you said, with so few features, there may not be another chance in the near future to do this with Campion. You know, this is Mm -hmm. kind of uh, an anomaly that we've got a new film and a high profile one, especially with that cast. So really excited about this. I think, you know, this is a, a quality we want of any filmmaker for an overview, but someone who has obsessions buried in their filmography that when we look at all these movies back to back in context, we can start to tease out a little bit better Mm -hmm. than one movie every couple years or even further than that for Campion. And I feel like that's especially the case with her. I mean, I have a sense of what is a Jane Campion film in my head, but maybe not a real, I haven't really been able to wrap my mind around it in its Mm -hmm. entirety. I'm hoping that's what this overview will help me do. That's a really fascinating point. And I'll admit, I don't. I don't think I know because the films have been so spread out because a lot of them I haven't reviewed or discussed really in any detail here on the show. I'm going to be looking for that connective tissue, Josh. So to round out then our film spotting 2021 preview, all the content we have planned for you this year, we did want to touch on our next best year ever. This is a series that started a couple years ago, the 20th anniversary of one of the best movie years. Certainly, 1999. Last year, we did 8 from 84. So this year, after a lot of discussion, a lot of consideration, it came down to two years. It was either going to be 7 from 71 or 7 from 76. 1971, Josh, is 50 years ago. So these are all titles celebrating a major anniversary this year. And there are a lot of great titles. So You and I have 
both seen A Clockwork Orange, The French Connection, and Harold and Maude. But our audience really has not ever heard us talk about those movies at all. And they're all three really good films. Clute, also 1971, Alan Bakula, Jane Fonda. That's a blind spot for me. We could have made, and we did, a pretty compelling case for focusing on 1971. But then you've got 1976 lingering. Now, that's also a milestone year in terms of it being the 45th anniversary of these titles. And it undoubtedly is one of the first years people mention when you ask them to name not just one of the best movie years of the 70s, but one of the best movie years ever. And that has something to do with the best picture nominees that year. Taxi Driver, Network, All the President's Men. Yes, the best picture winner, Rocky, and Hal Ashby's Woody Guthrie biopic Bound for Glory in there as well. But some formidable film titles, Josh. Some that have been discussed on the show, some that haven't. Taxi Driver was one I talked about with Dana Stevens, I think, 10 years ago when it was 35 years old. Network and All the President's Men have been in the pantheon since really film spotting's inception, so not really eligible for top fives. And there really hasn't been an occasion to talk about Rocky other than you joining the show and slagging it <laughs> as a terrible movie. So this is going to be fun. This is going to be really fun. Is that what that review is going to be? No, it'll it'll be it'll be interesting to revisit. And mentioning blind spots, you know, you said clute for you. I'll just confess, I have not seen Network. At least I don't I know. think that clinched it for me. Yeah, it, it did. Six was the it year. It did. And, and, but it's one of those cases where either because there's so many iconic scenes from Network that I've seen here and there, I feel like did I see Network? Or yeah. it, it might have to be where I sit down and actually experience the whole movie before I'll be able to say, no, I've never actually saw this. But either way, do for a revisit. So yeah, we found a way, a cheat, Adam, to make this yes. work that satisfies us. We I'm are, proud of this suggestion. <laughs> we are going to go with seven from 76. All right, we're going to focus on 1976. But then we promise we're also going to do a couple of those 71 titles we mentioned as Sacred Cow reviews. The timing works just great, right? It's 50th anniversary. So something like A Clockwork Orange, which I have not seen, oh my, probably in like 20 years at this point, something like that. Harold and Maude, which I, I saw a couple years ago, but I think is well worth a revisit as well. So those and a couple of others, we'll try to squeeze in here and there throughout the year as Sacred Cow reviews. Mm -hmm. And it has been mentioned in some top fives over the years, including Top five Jeff Bridges scenes a little bit more recently, but The Last Picture Show. I'm thinking about that as obviously one of the big titles from 1971 that is timely right now. At the time of this recording, the news about Cloris Leachman's passing right. has just come out. So that Peter Bogdanovich film is one that's on our radars as well. But we are going to jump right into the 7 from 76 series next week with the never more timely all the President's Men. Yeah. Oh, what a month to watch <laughs> that historical drama. I can't wait to revisit it. Yeah. Also next week, we are currently planning to have a review of the new Malcolm and Marie. That comes to Netflix next weekend. It's a movie that was shot last summer during the pandemic. A two-hander starring Zendaya and John David Washington, written and directed by Sam Levinson, who created the HBO limited series Euphoria, which also stars Zendaya. The critical response so far, I am actually completely trusting you and Sam on this. I haven't seen a single word about it. It seems like it's been fairly tepid. Yeah, and it seems I haven't looked 
into it too much. Certainly haven't read any reviews, but I've seen a lot of complaints about pot shots towards critics in the movie. So I, I that kind of hmm. makes me more curious, to be honest. <laughs> so if we're able yeah. to to fit that in, we'll have a review next week. Okay, some other housekeeping to take care of. A couple weeks back, you and Michael Phillips offered some Blu-ray copies of the new Love and Monsters starring Dylan O'Brien. The request was simple. Listeners just had to email us with their favorite movie monster. Not movie manimals. No, Josh. <laughs> Though, I mean, I suppose they could have picked one if they wanted. Yeah, I but, think they qualify. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Movie monsters. Adam, you don't really want to get into this manimals versus monsters debate, do you? No, no, I really <laughs> don't. I want to just get to the Love and Monsters winners. We do have five of those Blu-ray copies to give away. And Josh, the winners are Wendy Tucker. She's in Nampa, Idaho. Dear Adam and Josh and Michael, my favorite movie monsters are the creepy cave crawlers from The Descent. The caves were scary enough. Then you add in those things. Yikes. The movie scared the bejesus out of me. Thanks for the great show. Love that pick, Wendy. Chris Sweet Sanctimony Pie wrote in to say, favorite movie monster? Got to be the Xenomorph from Alien. Mm, And here's one from C. Walter. My favorite movie monster would absolutely be Godzilla. Even have a tattoo. Been a fan for over 27 years, and I've passed on my love of creature features to my daughter. Love and Monsters was a great movie and welcome respite from a rough 2020 and is actually one of the better monster movies released since the new millennium. Good luck on the giveaway. David Hamlin writes in, no manimal here. The Babadook. (laughs) I love this, Josh. The Babadook would be one of Monsters, Inc.'s top employees before they switch their power source at the end of the movie. (laughs) Well said. Going with Babadook. Thanks for the chance at Love of Monsters. And finally, Anthony Gagliardi. He says, your beloved Josh Gremlins. Yes. Which edges out the fly. Mm. Thanks for the opportunity. Anthony writes, thank you, Anthony. And everyone for entering. Congratulations to our winners. Again, Love of Monsters is out now on Blue. Blu-ray, 4K Ultra HD and digital. It is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Dylan O'Brien stars as a young man who makes a dangerous journey into a monster-infested world to be with the girl of his dreams. Who wouldn't do that, Josh? Rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. Thank you to Paramount for those copies. And again, thank you to every listener who entered. Just email us, feedback at filmspotting.net with your mailing address, and we will get those Blu-rays shipped off to you. Only one manimal in the bunch there, Adam. The fly. Kind kind of disappointed. (laughs) Over on the next picture show, our sister podcast, they are doing their drinking buddies pairing. This looks at Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round alongside Alexander Payne's Sideways. Part two is available right now. And then next week, they'll begin their new pairing, which is a look at Promising Young Woman, the new one with Carrie Mulligan, directed by Emerald Fennell. And they'll look at that alongside Mary Heron's American Psycho from 2000. From what I remember and from the degree that I was uncomfortable with American Psycho, Adam, Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense pairing that with Promising Young Woman. Yeah, they're really good at what they do, including pairing titles together like those two. The next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and more info is available at nextpictureshow.net. We do want to mention that you can support the show by joining the Film Spotting family over on Patreon for a mere $5 a month. You get ad-free episodes, you get monthly trivia spotting opportunities, February tickets will go on sale very soon. We haven't even announced that date yet, and we need to do it, Josh. You also get monthly bonus episodes. The current one we have waiting to drop is 
film directors working in TV. So sharing some thoughts on that topic, including maybe what filmmakers we'd like to see do some work in TV and really exciting. We made our goal of 1000 patrons. So we'll be scheduling a virtual watch party to celebrate. We're thinking in March in line with the 16th anniversary of the show. If you join the family, not only will you get to participate in that virtual watch, you'll be able to help us choose the title, except maybe you won't because I think in our last meeting between myself, you and our producer, Sam, we landed on a title and Nine Uh or 10 year old Uh me would be horrified to know that much older me is actually second guessing this this path. No, you're you guys are so gung ho about this, though. I knew regret was going to set in. Go ahead and say it. (laughs) We're going to do Top Gun. We are going to watch Top Gun with listeners and provide commentary. Adam, commentary. You can can sing along. um, And (laughs) I will. You can quote the dialogue. You can just go back in time and you'll be so happy. Hmm. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Top Gun. Who wouldn't want to join the film spotting family now, Josh, after hearing that patreon.com slash film spotting is where you do it. It is time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. Way back in December, Adam and I massacred this scene. I need not impress upon you the trouble faced by the Western Hemisphere without your support in some fashion. I know, I know. You are on my mind day and night. Look, we could possibly... Mr. President. I mean to say... We are facing the gravest odds. We could take your planes to about a mile from the Canadian border. And then, if you send across a team of horses from Canada, nothing motorized, then you could pull them over the border yourself. How does that sound? Horses? Um, you, you did say a, a, a team of horses. Gary Oldman there in his Oscar-winning turn as Winston Churchill alongside David Strathern as FDR in 2017's Darkest Hour. That was written by Anthony McCartan and directed by Joe Wright. Along with that massacre, we shared our Chicago Film Critics Association ballot picks, our favorite performances, and more of 2020. And we heard from many listeners, including Corey Kraft in Birmingham, Alabama, Roll Tide. He says the film in question is Darkest Hour, and Josh's Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill performance was amazing. Was it? Let's let's revisit it, Josh. Mr. President? I, I mean to say... We are facing uh, 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 the gravest odds. We could. I don't know if amazing is the word Corey was going for, but I'll take it. Yeah. Well, Corey says a few years out, I'm not sure I believe Oldman's performance was Oscar worthy. Likewise, I'm not sure his work in Mank is Oscar worthy, but it's tremendously entertaining. It might be the most pure movie going fun I've had in a Joe Wright movie since Pride and Prejudice kind of makes me want to rewatch it. 
Here's Dylan Dom. If you had picked any other scene from this absolute snooze fest of a film, I don't think I could have gotten it. But thankfully, you picked the one scene that stuck with me from this and the only scene that could possibly justify Oldman winning that Oscar over Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Thread, Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out, and Timothy Chalamet for Call Me By Your Name. If I'm fortunate enough to win the t-shirt this week, I'd be happy to go pick it up from a team of delivery horses in Canada. <laughs> that is that is the service we're using these days. Lisa and Chris in Ayer, Massachusetts says, but how does Darkest Hour relate to your 2020 Best Performances episode? For starters, this brings to mind two films that feature prominently in 2020's Best of Gary Oldman's starring Turn and Mank and David Strather in supporting Turn in Nomadland. The Darkest Hour also features an excellent Ben Mendelsohn as King George VI, which brings to mind the compelling TV series The Crown, which also features gripping depictions of both King George and Winston Churchill, and the current season features the elegant Emerald Fennel, whose directorial debut, Promising Young Woman, also got some love on this episode. Or perhaps your masquerade selection best relates to the dire situation our world is currently facing, which is mirrored by the worldwide predicament in The Darkest Hour. So yeah, we massacred this back at the end of December, but listeners had a long time to enter, and Lisa obviously entering around the time, I don't know, our capital was facing an insurrection, Josh. So we understand where Lisa's head was, and congratulations to Lisa and Chris on putting in so much time and effort to connect all the dots yeah. to the end of your show, Josh. That was some good work. Well, you're going to go ahead and reach into the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Jeremy King. He's in Fairfax, Virginia. Congratulations, Jeremy. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Lamont, brown tones, brown tones. Now let me hear you read your line. We move on out of this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and I may have to give a little bit of a hint here. I mean, I feel like this is a big movie. That's definitely the case. We're not going obscure here. Correct. But does this dialogue really betray anything? Do you think the audience is going to know this one when they hear it right away? I think the real problem is that there are a lot of people who love this movie. And even those who love this movie have repressed this moment from How their, dare you? From their minds. How dare you? It is so terrible. The slander <laughs> I had to endure in the film spotting slack between you and Sam was enough. And oh. now you bring it onto the airwaves, Josh. <laughs> you know, Adam, it's it's so much harder to do a massacre theater performance of bad acting than good uh -huh. acting. And I think that's our challenge here today. <laughs> okay. Well, the hint I was going to give was simply... It's too bad we don't have our dancing shoes on. Mm. That may hinder us. That is your hint. Okay. You start this one off, so I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready, Josh? Um, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're phoning this one in. I don't have to summon a lot of passion or energy no. or, you know, here okay. we go. Okay. And action. You're not thinking I'm someone else. I know you are not. Or that we've met before. I know we have not. I felt I knew something never before was going to happen, had to happen, but this is so much more. My hands are cold. Yours too. So warm. So beautiful. Beautiful. And scene. I like so that's, that's you being bored. <laughs> you tried to carry the weight for me. Yeah, I did. I, I appreciate that, Adam. I, I don't know if it's going to work, but nice try. 
If you know what film we just massacred, I've never regretted more, Josh, not being in the same room with you when we did a scene. <laughs> if you know the film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You don't have quite as much time this go-around. The deadline is Monday, February 8th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. We have prepared for this moment for a long time. Then it is time. Yes. Now, we must hurry. The others will be gathering. Still coming out in April, Josh. Mortal Kombat. Yes! Yeah, no Bond, no Edgar Wright. We don't even get A Quiet Place 2, just Mortal Kombat. And that probably will be the last thing you ever hear about Mortal Kombat (laughs) on this show. Hey, hey, I mean... While you were Mr. Fancy Pants gathering your college floor mates to watch Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. I was playing Mortal Kombat. Adam. Oh, you know, don't think I'm, we didn't also make I'm, time for plenty of that. <laughs> Sega was that Sega was that oh, Nintendo? Yeah, what was it at the time? It was Sega. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, we were we were regulars playing Mortal Kombat as well. Josh, last week on the show we had a new film spotting poll asking about anticipated Spring Twenty One releases. The options we gave you were No Time to Die. And Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, or you could pick other. The day after we recorded that show, both those movies got moved to October. So the poll, just another in a long line of deeply flawed film spotting polls. And obviously now they also are cursed. You can still vote, though, and you can leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. We'll share the results on next week's show. And that gets us back to our 2021 movie preview. We've shared our five through three questions of the movie year. It's time for our top two. What do you want to know about Mortal Kombat? I want to know, is the ice guy going to have a starring role? Because he was my hmm. guy. What was his name? Do you remember? The guy who shot ice? No, no. There'll have to be fan service, though. Someone will have to say, get over here. Really loudly and dramatically, yes, yes. right? Okay. Do you remember which player you, you battled as? Or did you jump around? No, I think I was boring and pretty much stuck to Ryu. Oh, wow. Look at you pulling out the name. I pulled that out. I don't even remember what classes I took in college, but Ooh. I remember the character I played in Mortal Kombat. I've never been more impressed, Adam Kempinar. Yeah. All right. My number two question does not have to do with Mortal Kombat. It is. Have we missed Baz Luhrmann? It's been eight years since Luhrmann's nope. last feature. Nope. Oh, that was quick. Answer. That was quick. I got the answer. Are you basing this, Adam, just on that last feature, the Leonardo DiCaprio Great Gatsby adaptation? We did review it together. It was episode no. 446. You were decidedly not in favor. I was pro. Yeah. but No, it, I also remember Australia. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. That's what I was wondering. I mean, I I am a fan of both of those. Actually, and of course, I'm a huge fan of Moulin Rouge, Romeo and Juliet. Still need to see Strictly Ballroom. Maybe I'll try to make up for that before this untitled Elvis Presley project does come out this year. It looks like it probably is going to happen. It stars Austin Butler as the king himself. And you may be asking, who's Austin Butler? He's been on TV for a number of years, but I remember him as Tex in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, one of the Mason family members who invades Rick Dalton's home in the climax there. Also in this Elvis movie is going to be Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker. So I'm intrigued not only because of Lerman, but despite my biopic bias, I'm kind of curious about 
Elvis, having watched a handful of Elvis movies the last couple of years, including Viva Las Vegas just last year. I mentioned, hmm. I think on our last show, how every once in a while, I don't know, the, the family is just kind of, we're in the mood for an Elvis movie. Not that they're good, but they're all sort of mesmerizing. And so I'm really hoping that Lorman can tap into that a little bit and capture some of what I really loved in those earlier films. Yeah, Hmm. Australia, Great Gatsby, not at the level of those. But I'm kind of excited to see that there's going to be a new Baz Luhrmann picture. I think November 5 Mm -hmm. is the date that's listed at least at IMDb for his Elvis movie. Okay, well, I have a major Baz Luhrmann blind spot, and that is Romeo and Juliet, which is a nice segue into my number two movie question. Let's see if I can do this trippingly on the tongue. Of course, you've heard Massacre Theater. I can't, but maybe you can decode what movie my question is about from this, Josh. When shall we meet again, Ethan? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? I am talking about, of course, The Tragedy of Macbeth, a new film from A24, playing the title character Denzel Washington, Lady Macbeth, Francis McDormand. And you know what I'm getting at here, right? With that question, that quote that I stole from Shakespeare's Macbeth. This is Joel Cohn without Ethan. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a Cohn Brothers production. It is a single Cohn brother. And my brain is trying to process that. I found an IndieWire article from last April where Francis McDormand shed a little bit of light on the project, as well as her husband, Joel Cohn. And she said that we're calling it the tragedy of Macbeth, not just Macbeth. She thought that was an important distinction. In Joel's adaptation, we are exploring the age of the characters. And in our adaptation, the Macbeths are older. Both Denzel and I are older than what is often cast as the Macbeths. We're post-menopausal. We're past childbearing age. That puts a pressure on their ambition to have the crown. I think the most important distinction is that it is their last chance for glory. Again, that's Francis McDormand this past April. So we've got here, obviously, a tragedy. But there is this ticking clock element that also seems to make it kind of a thriller. And I'm excited about that meshing, but also really excited about the prospect of what a Cone brother will do with the dark humor of Macbeth. And then just recently, I saw, Josh, the news that this movie was shot in black and white by Bruno Delbanel, who also shot Inside Lewin Davis. He did The Ballad of Buster Scruggs with the Cone brothers. And that made me think about the man who wasn't there also in black and white. Now, that was Roger Deakins, of course. But as I dwelled on it just a little bit, I don't know, The Man Who Wasn't There is a pretty good alternate title for Macbeth. I mean, I just went to IMDb today and pulled from the storyline synopsis of The Man Who Wasn't There, but it says, 1949, Santa Rosa, California, a laconic chain-smoking barber with fallen arches tells a story of a man trying to escape a humdrum life. It's a tale of suspected adultery, blackmail, foul play, death, Sacramento city slickers, racial slurs, invented war heroic, shaved legs, a gamine piano player, aliens, and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So don't get me wrong. I'm not sure Heisenberg is covered in the Shakespeare text or aliens, but war heroics invented or otherwise, blackmail, foul play, death. Say he was being blackmailed. By who? You don't know. For having an affair. With who? You don't know. Did anyone else know about it? Probably not. You don't know. 
this seems like pretty familiar territory. Maybe this Cone brother in particular has always been influenced by Shakespeare's Scottish play. And this really comes down to what I alluded to earlier. What is a Cone movie, if not a Cone Brothers movie? I didn't do a thorough scouring of their IMDb pages, but their individual projects are either completely non-existent or scant at best. So I am very curious. I would be interested anyway in pretty much any adaptation of Macbeth, especially one that starred Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. But the fact that it's a solo Cone brother just adds another layer for me. If Joel Cohen manages to squeeze aliens into Macbeth, I'm going to be doubly excited for this. Yeah. Yeah. So many questions about this one. I can't wait to see it. All right. Down to my number one question, Adam, what is our annual capacity as a nation, as a planet, really, for Lin-Manuel Miranda? Now, I'm going to break a record that you probably okay. set for number of projects mentioned in one pick. By my count, the Hamilton Impresario has at least five projects coming out in 2021. I'm going to go through these quickly, and I'll rank them according to my interests, starting with most interested here at the start. That's In the Heights. We mentioned it. Mm -hmm. Last year in our preview, John M. Chu directing this adaptation of Miranda's 2008 Broadway musical. Now, to be fair, Miranda only has a cameo in this. Really excited about this one. We saw a production of it together in Chicago, Adam. That was pretty great. So looking forward to In the Heights, June 18 is when that's supposed to come out. Then we've got Encanto. This is a Disney animated film. It's about a Colombian girl growing up in a magical family. On this one, Miranda has story credit. He's also contributing songs to it. Encanto, it's looking like, is a November 24 release. Then there's the documentary Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Decided to Go For It. Miranda is a producer on this one, but he's also going to be part of the on-camera interviews, a documentary about the original West Side Story star. Next up, Tick, Tick, Boom. This is Miranda's feature directorial debut. It's an adaptation of a musical of the same name that is about an aspiring theater composer looking for his big break. Now, this may mm. sound like Miranda's own real-life story, but actually Tick, Tick, Boom is a semi-autobiographical musical from the late Jonathan Larson. He was the Pulitzer Prize winner behind Rent. So Miranda stepping in pretty much just as director here. Tick, Tick, mm -hmm. Boom, no release date for that one. Lastly, Vivo, another animated film, this one from Sony. This is something it sounds like Miranda first pitched way back in 2010. He came up with the story. He also wrote music for it. Here's the synopsis. A kinkajou with a thirst for adventure and a passion for music makes a treacherous passage from Havana, Cuba to Miami, Florida in pursuit of his dreams to fulfill his destiny. That one coming out June 4. Adam, what's a kinkajou? I have another question for you. No idea. <laughs> Okay. No help there. I, my guess would have been some sort of lemur, and I think that's close from, from what I looked, some sort of rainforest small <laughs> mammal. So, yeah, those are Miranda's five projects wow. that he's involved in in varying degrees, all coming out in 2021. Is this too much, or do you think the fact that most of it is behind the camera yeah. in different sort of roles, mm -hmm. we're not going to feel overwhelmed? Will we still well, love him when, it come, when December comes, Adam? Will we still love him? I think we're going to love Lin-Manuel Miranda for life. I, okay. think, I think he's good. And I think you make a great point about the variety of projects and the variety of his roles in those projects. So I'm not too worried. But now I fully understand why I don't see him tweeting 
as prolifically as he has over the past couple of years, he's obviously been really busy. Yes. Too busy to tweet. A little busy. And you know what? That's probably a good thing for all of us. My number one question about the movie year. So yes, Joel Cohn is solo, but if my favorite directors have movies coming out in the same year, and I should mention that Macbeth right now doesn't have a date set. Hopefully it will be a 2021 release. They're going to get the top two slots. So I'm going, Josh, from one of the filmmakers who gave us the Soggy Bottom Boys to the filmmaker who's going to give us Soggy Bottom. And that's the question. Soggy Bottom. That's it. <laughs> because Soggy Bottom question mark. Exactly. Because as is not surprising at this point with Paul Thomas Anderson, every new project seems to be a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I mean, there's a plot synopsis over at IMDb. Set in 1970s San Fernando Valley, the film follows a high school student who is also a successful child actor. That's all we got. The Valley, obviously a milieu, very familiar to Anderson. He grew up there, familiar to us through Anderson's lens in multiple movies, including Magnolia. And we know that Bradley Cooper stars in it. We know that Alana Haim from the band Haim with her sisters stars in the movie. He's maybe... And I do say maybe playing producer John Peters and she's playing Barbara Streisand and the movie has something to do with the making of the 1976 version of A Star is Born, which is a movie. I mean, Josh, we did fairly recently do a bonus episode for our patrons about turkeys that we love. I'm sure there are some people who have very warm, nostalgic feelings for that 76 version of A Star is Born with Streisand and Chris Christopherson. But make no mistake, it's a turkey. It's a bad movie. Still, if Paul Thomas Anderson has anything to do with anything surrounding it, I am good. I was piecing this together today. Maybe DiCaprio was originally attached before Bradley Cooper. Benny Safdie, one of the Safdie brothers, obviously, part of that filmmaking duo, is in it portraying a closeted 70s politician, real-life politician named Joe Wax. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, Cooper Alexander Hoffman, is supposedly in it as well. And a lot of this people are just basing off of photos that have leaked from the set. Anybody just trying to get a glimpse while they're making the movie. So Paul Thomas Anderson himself is obviously very secretive about this, doesn't want a lot of details to be out there. And I forgot that it was five years, Josh, between the time we saw There Will Be Blood to the master in 2012. That was part of the buildup around it is that we hadn't seen a Paul Thomas Anderson film for some time. He has been on a more regular two to three year cadence since then. I think both Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread are brilliant. And I think whether it's five years or two or three, a new Paul Thomas Anderson film for me is the event of the movie year. So my number one question is Soggy Bottom. I hope the answer is just yes. I hope we at least get it because Yeah. yeah, definitely among the most anticipated titles of 2021 for me. It does have a date right now penciled in December 15th. We'll have to wait till the end of the year, but hopefully we do see it in 2021. Those are our top five questions of the movie year. Any you didn't sneak in, Josh, that you want to include as an honorable mention? Yeah, real quick here, and I'm hoping maybe I can get some listener help. Where can I find Roy Anderson's 
about endlessness. Anderson, of course, the Swedish filmmaker we encountered a couple years ago now, Adam, when we did our Nordic cinema marathon, Mm -hmm. I believe. And uh, I think it was Songs from the Second Floor, or was it You the Living we watched for that? At any case- We watched both. Yeah, okay, that sounds right. Uh, And then I recently caught up with a pigeon set on a branch reflecting on existence. So I've been eagerly anticipating about Endlessness, which was supposed to come out last year, but I think caught up as so many titles- in the pandemic it may have played in a few festivals i've actually i've like emailed roy anderson's website where they have a form just to to ask where can i find this movie because i really can't tell if it's just in limbo or it's available streaming anywhere so if any listeners have information on that please tell me where i can find roy anderson's about endlessness Hmm. and then this one is for sam our producer i want to know is sam going to watch the spongebob movie sponge on the run that's another that's another 2021 release and as we know from trivia spotting sam needs to catch up on his spongebob yeah he really does i don't think he feels any shame but (laughs) most of our listeners at least all of those who were on that trivia spotting call were horrified when sam had no clue about a question surrounding bikini bottom so we know that he has been raising his kids probably properly yeah and i'm going to confess i was lost too so <laughs> i couldn't help oh sam out on that i will not be watching spongebob movie sponge on the run but you okay you enjoy adam just in case everyone listening isn't clear on who the snobs are here on the show you now <laughs> you now know so i think i asked my big honorable mention last year when i was setting you up to talk about denis villeneuve's dune box office prospects aside Drawing from your reaction to Lynch's misfire, I wanted to hear what a successful screen version of Dune looks like. We will see whether or not Denis Villeneuve pulls that off this year. Will the Mauritanian make me feel better or worse about my love for The Last King of Scotland? Same director there, Kevin McDonald. And then I was going to ask people to come up with a more iconic duo than Diana Rigg and Terrence Stamp co-starring in Last Night in Soho together, the Edgar Wright film. And the answer is... A duo that's in that film, or at least has the potential to be, Anya Taylor-Joy and Thomason McKenzie, two of the best young actors we have in movies right now. I don't have a good question about it. I'm just really interested in seeing The Card Counter, because Paul Schrader made another movie, his first since First Reformed. And not only that, it stars Oscar Isaac. And Peter Jackson has a new documentary coming out about the Beatles, pulling from footage, I think some of it never before seen, certainly a lot of it restored, that looks at the last year of the Beatles and the recording of the Let It Be album. And the question that was kind of swirling in my head was, could I actually be excited about a Beatles movie of any kind, just because the Beatles have just always been a part of my life since I was seven or eight years old. I've always been a huge fan. I didn't know that I necessarily needed to see another documentary or anything about the Beatles. And then I saw some footage of the movie in a clip on Facebook the other night. Josh had just popped up while they were recording Come Together. And I wished I could have just watched the whole thing. I was totally dialed in and ready to go. So eager to see Get Back when it comes out this year. Again, those are our top five questions and more of the movie year. We would love to hear your questions and any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net because Josh, that is our show. 
You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll on the website. We're asking what film that was formerly scheduled for spring 21 are you most looking forward to seeing in a movie theater? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, The Little Things, Denzel Washington and Rami Malek are cops on the trail of a serial killer played by Jared Leto. That's directed by John Lee Hancock. It is in limited release and on HBO Max. The Dig, a period drama with the great Carey Mulligan and the also great Ray Fiennes, is on Netflix. And Palmer, starring Justin Timberlake as an ex-con, returning to life in his hometown where he forms an unlikely bond with a boy from a troubled home, is on Apple+. Plus. Finally, Supernova, with Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci as longtime partners on a road trip visiting friends as Tucci's character battles early-onset Alzheimer's. That is out in limited release and VOD as well. And on select IMAX screens and also coming to Hulu on February 19th is Nomadland, the latest from Chloe Zhao starring Francis McDormand. Also, Saint Maud is out exclusively on Epics February 12th. You can see it in some theaters and drive-ins. Josh, this is one you've caught up with. Maybe we'll give it a couple minutes on an upcoming show. I can't wait to hear what people make of this one because it is it is really something. I think we might have another golden brick candidate on our hands here. It's a debut from filmmaker Rose Glass, and the filmmaking is terrifying and exhilarating, hmm. I think. But I am still working through some questions I had with the movie as well. So if you get a chance to watch St. Maud, yeah, definitely check it out. We will discuss. Okay. Next week on the show, though, our plan is to get to the first entry in our 7 from 76 Best Movie Year Ever series, All the President's Men, and we might have some time as well for Malcolm and Marie coming to Netflix. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.